but it's not always up to the archives to work as promoters. Right. Uh, they may. They may. Um, <laughs> make goes. sure you put some. Make sure you're wearing that wolfsbane. <laughs> Greetings across whatever you listen to podcasts on. This is the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I'm your host, Ben Modell, and this is our 53rd episode. Lucky 53. Yeah, uh, we were recording at the beginning, the very beginning of November, although if you were outside, you would not believe that. Uh, I'm here, as always, joined virtually by co-host and co-producer Kerr Lockhart. How, how are you doing, Kerr? Hi, Ben. Sipping a margarita out here on on the beach. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm on a lanai right now myself. <laughs> if I may use that word on television. <laughs> I'm very pleased with the last two episodes. I think that a lot of people will get a lot out of the, the Bill Perry interviews, and even if people haven't found it yet, it, it's there as a resource for anybody who's interested in, in William Perry and his and his music. And I think oh, that... Oh, boy, the response has been great, too. Yeah, and I think that uh, you and I have researched that at some point, uh, Google or Bing or whatever searches are going to start turning up results on podcasts. And so mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it's just... Uh, Something that I thought was an important resource for fans and scholars, and also I wanted to honor his work. I think his place and his music's place in the renaissance that silent film had in the last century uh, can't be overemphasized enough. I, at one time, compared one of the scores to a Max Steiner score, and I, I really felt like that. This, uh, I oh, think yeah. it was a Zorro score, that he's got these very... Oh well-shaped, fully developed themes that manage to play out and yet support the film. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And he's really using the piano like it's an orchestra. I think people don't realize how important, uh, not only the the series that Paul Killiam did, but the the fact that the scores took the film seriously for the first time. Uh, and, and what was interesting, to, like what uh, Bill said about Paul Killiam, there was this moment where he he went from making fun of these movies to putting them up on a pedestal for the rest of us. I, I certainly hope anyone listening, if you if you haven't bought any or all of William Perry's music CDs, uh, do uh, go to his website. So you know you're you're going to get it from him, and he gets more royalties that way. Or you know feel free to go to, to Naxos or or Amazon. But uh, if you've heard those scores and would love to hear them again, definitely buy as many of his CDs as you can. It's just, it's just w- wonderful. And just to know his his musical background was uh, was fascinating. And he had an ozone orchestra <laughs> in the fifties. Mm-hmm. Amazing, yeah. yeah. So I'm really I'm glad I'm really glad we were able to we were able to do that and share that with everybody. Now, as far as your own playing, uh, either at the time you were starting out back at NYU, or now uh, talking to him in the interview, you know, how do you think it's it's touched you and, and what you do? Well, I, at the beginning, I just had that sound in the back of my head, uh, trying to make music that took the film seriously, and uh, they, which was something that was also reinforced by uh, you know, what I learned from, from Lee Irwin. But I think that in speaking with uh, Bill and recording the podcast and then listening to the edits before we, we we posted them 
and then maybe listening to them again, uh, it just it really made me feel uh, uh, like I, I need to take my own playing up a notch again. Uh, every once in a while, I'll have some kind of encounter like that that makes me think, you know, you should really try a little harder, Ben. And uh, and actually, the score I just recorded for Sky High, the 1922 Tom Mix film, which I'll be releasing on Blu-ray at some time in, in, in 2023, um, I, ch- I chose to do it on piano, and I was thinking of, of those, those Silent Years scores, and I think my playing is a little bit, just a hair better than usual. And, and I did really make a point... And this is, you know, this is something I think about a lot: is how often do you play a character's theme or the main theme for the film? Because if you play it too often, then it becomes recognizable music and it pulls you out of the experience. And I tend to err on the other side, uh, where I'll I will use a main theme three times, maybe four, like the love theme, because there are three moments when it it fits. I remember speaking with somebody during a Q and A, and they asked me, "Do you use light motifs or themes?" And I said, "I sure did. I just I just used it, but I think that it was more of a subliminal thing, which is fine with me. But I'm always looking to question what I'm doing and see if there is a different way or a better way of employing a certain technique. And so I created a main theme for the opening titles of Sky High, and I I bring it around a few times. And there there are a few places that real breaks. And, and stuff like that where where it can come around again. And the same thing with the, the theme I came up with for, for Tom Mix him, himself. And, and this is something that, as Bill talked about, was was a big part of what he what he did, is that you had a theme. Um, I think we can everybody listening who who knows that, that Gold Rush score can kind of hum at least three of, of the themes from the Gold Rush, regardless mm-hmm. of how many times we've seen it. Uh, so it's really made me think, you know, you should try a little harder uh, and and I, I hope it's paying I hope it's paying off. Ben, every week we do, or most weeks we try and plug a subscription to your email, which is news of all things Ben Modell. Uh, yeah. appearances, new products, and uh, in in a recent case, an article that you actually were able to provide readers uh, with something you'd written that was ordinarily be behind a paywall. Yeah. Because uh, apparently your emails are stuffed with goodies. Yeah, People yeah. People take the I... trouble to, to really take a look. Yeah, and, and, and it's always... Uh, a... I'm constantly trying to find new ways to make the emails work better, uh, are easier to read and easier to navigate. Uh, so I'll put images and then put links because I, I watched somebody scroll up and down through one of my emails and tap, tap, tap. And sometimes it was just the image and I thought I really need to put links there. And sometimes people can miss the links that I put in there. So the article that I wrote was for the American Guild of Organists magazine called The American Organist. And... That came about because uh, Jim Rhodes, who a bunch of decades ago uh, founded the Kansas Silent Film Festival, who is also a, an organ enthusiast, recommended me to the editor of the magazine to write an article. Uh, he was he himself was going to write an article about someone who plays organ at horse races, uh, which. <laughs> I hope the well, horses appreciate that. Well, I gosh, I hope so. I mean, I figure hockey. I know there's a bunch of people I know who play in 
and hockey matches or ball games like Dave Callendine out, out in Detroit. But I never thought of you know playing at a horse race. But I, I guess you could do that. Uh, anyway, you, so Jim you've wrote. Got to play. You have to play that uh, that Strauss polka Bonfry then. Yeah. The horse race music. <laughs> Yeah, and while you're waiting for everybody to get lined up, you you play Fugue for Ten Horns. You know, I got the horse <laughs> right here. It does have a sort of doom ba dip boom ba dip kind of, you know, while you're waiting kind of music. I got the horse right here. The name is Paul Revere. And here's a guy that says if the weather's clear, can do, can do. This guy says the horse can do. If he says the horse can do. But anyway, so Jim Rhodes uh, uh, connected me with the, the gentleman who was the editor and asked me to write something. And I had written something on my blog in, 20, I think, 2018 that I posted in October of that month called How to Accompany a Silent Movie at Halloween. Because every year before COVID and now again, uh, every everyone who can play the organ gets a DVD of Nosferatu or Caligari, etc., and, and it gives it a shot. So I adapted that article and was po- published in the American Organist. But they sent because I don't subscribe. Uh, they they sent me a PDF of the article itself, and so I made that available through uh, a link in my emails. And I've now started. This is the new thing I'm trying with my emails. Is that even though in the body of the email I'll say I'm playing for this uh, at this theater, information is here, and then the word here is a hyperlink. And by the time you get to the bottom, then you've got to go back up and find it. If you're on your phone, you're not. it's going to be a bit of a hunt. And so I now have a block at the end of the email, but before all the pictures I, I add, that says, and here are the links. And there's so, just a list of everything I've mentioned. So to follow that lead... How do you play for a Halloween show? Uh, very careful. I mean, this is this is basic. These are this is a, a list of my basic don'ts and be carefuls about film accompaniment. But it was couched in the context of so you want to play the organ for a silent movie because it's Halloween and everybody's doing it. Uh, just a lot of the basics: uh, taking the film seriously, don't do song title puns. There was somebody who once told me about an organist who was very proud of the fact that. During uh, the scene in Phantom of the Opera, when Eric the Phantom is in the catacombs and he goes down under the water, the organist was so proud that he played Under the Sea from The Little Mermaid and got a huge laugh. Oh, dear God. And and I've, uh, I've heard of, of all sorts of things like that. But a lot of people think that that's what you're supposed to do, is make fun of the movie. And and uh, so I, I talk about things like that and avoiding sound effects and... I don't really remember. It's just a lot of the basic B flat stuff. Well, you can. Everyone can can go find that. Go check in your copy yeah, of if the you, email. Yeah, if you if you get my emails, you'll you'll see it. But you know, and then the other reason I decided to start doing this with a block of links is a uh, somebody came to my show in Brookings, South Dakota, who gets my emails, saw that I was going to be playing there, even even though the show was four and a half hours away from where he lived in Minnesota. <laughs> Uh, this guy, Tracy Toltzman, who is the head of the Blockheads tent of the Sons of the Desert, he and his wife, Mary, made a road trip of it, but he told me, you know, he couldn't find the link, and so he Googled it up and found the information. I figured, I need to make sure it's easier for people. 
uh, to find this. I'm not faulting him because clearly uh, this is something I didn't format well. So a big part of marketing and promotion is understanding, you know, having an empathic understanding of what people who read what you're putting out there uh, are experiencing and making it more easy and effective for them to buy things or or whatever. And I guess ha- I was thought I was being so clever by making sure I had lots of links throughout the body, uh, but it's easy to lose sight of them and to have them repeated, sort of like uh, the end of every universal silent where it says a good cast is worth repeating. And so, you know, the film is over, the audience is applauding. Now we have to wait another 18 seconds while we look at the cast list again. That's something I had to, you know, deal with when I play for any universal silent, but also when I play for for Frankenstein, because it was at the end of Frankenstein as well. Before we get to that, just to stick with the traditional uh, silent film accompanist October, and if you're not playing in October... You're not a silent film accompanist. Um, uh, yeah, you're usually pretty busy. And even if you aren't, <laughs> that's just the one silent film you do every year, so especially this year. I'm going to give you the kind of question that you always hate to answer, and I'm, going to, I'm waiting to see how you avoid it this time. Uh, okay. But, okay, so the, the, the choice is, uh, so the programmer said to you, it's, it's going to be uh, either Caligari, Nosferatu, or Phantom of the Opera, which one and why? Just for you, ignoring the audience and the programming, just for how Ben, what what Ben would like to play. Oh, you know, I really never think that way. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, and that is a question people, oh, yeah, along with do you have a favorite film, there's always the question, do you have a favorite film to play for? And for me, it's always about the audience. What have you already shown them? Do they have any, any uh, exposure to silent film? So if it's a brand new audience, Nosferatu or Phantom, uh, if they've seen something, then Caligari, because that's a pretty weird movie. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a lot to take in. Um, I love teaching that film mm-hmm. uh, and showing it to my students and talking about the, the crazy sets and makeup and everything, but that's not ideal for a first-timer audience. And the, the, when I played for, uh, the first time I played in Brookings, South Dakota, last year, that's what they wanted to show, and it was the first time they were doing this, and they went, you know, they figured, we'll do it on Halloween, everybody knows Phantom of the Opera, uh, they know the story, they know about the chandelier and the mask and all that stuff, and so we'll run that. And this year, because it was the centennial of Nosferatu, like you need a reason to show, another reason to show that picture at Halloween. Uh, there were, you know, a lot of shows of Nosferatu, but I did a show of Nosferatu at the Jacob Burns Film Center out in Pleasantville, and they have uh, not shown much silent film over the last several years and are just starting to get back into it. So that show, we had a, you know, pretty full house, and I brought the my digital theater organ out, and it was pretty scary stuff. You know, it was, it was a lot of fun. But that, you know, it's really for me. It's all it's all about the audience. And and so, the flip side of that is at the Cinema Arts Center, where you know I've been playing there uh, every month since 2006. We've built up an audience, as has the Cinema Arts Center, because they've been around for 45 years. They know the people who come know that if we're if we're showing something in the silent film series or something has been programmed by Dylan or any of the other people, Dylan Skolnick, that it's going to be something worth watching. So I played for a film called The Bat, directed by Roland West, and most people know of The Bat Whispers, but this was the silent film that he made that 
that was a remake of. And we had a, we had a pretty good uh, turnout for that. And we got a the the thirty five millimeter print from UCLA Film and Television Archive. But again, that was the thing where I figured I don't have to show Nosferatu. Um, they had already run Nosferatu earlier in the month with the um, the Invincible Czars doing their score. So mm-hmm. that's fine. That's a, that's a fun event. But uh, so for an, an audience like, well, you've seen all this stuff already. Here's something that's that's that you really should know about, but it's just not part of the canon just yet. I've seen you make some other uh, recommendations for October. Uh, was it uh, the Cat and the Canary? Yeah, Cat and the Canary is great, and mm-hmm. and it's just that it doesn't have a famous monster to sell it. You know, the title of the film sounds like a Tweety cartoon. <laughs> yeah, and that's that uh, genre of this the scary house genre. Yeah, and. And it's a film that set the tone and, and production design for Universal Horror. They followed it, and the Cat and the Canary was followed up the following, I think, year with uh, a film called The Last Warning, which is basically the same film with a lot of the same cast, but in, it's in a theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the, that's, you know, I've gathered you here to read the will, and we'll find out who's going to inherit the money, and then bodies start disappearing. Uh, but the title isn't much of a draw. Mm-hmm. And and the bat absolutely is. It's also a bunch of people gathered in a spooky old house, and the production design is by William Cameron Menzies. So it's just wow. just amazing to look at. And there are elements of it or from the Bat Whispers that inspired Bob Kane in developing and creating the Batman character from the comic books. Mm. So you have, I mean, you say the bat and you put a couple of stills of the silhouette of a bat that looks like it's the bat signal. It's an easy sell even if you haven't been to a silent film before. Yeah, it would be nice to see some of the archives making uh, some curated lists of what's available on 35 or on DCPs that would be some alternates for uh, the Halloween season. Yeah, well, that'll be a blog post I can I can put up next year. Uh, in in March or April, so that p- programmers can uh, start use that as as a resource. Uh, it would be great for our ar- you know archives take care of the films. They make sure they they get shipped out and inspected and preserved and and all that kind of stuff. But it's not always uh, up to the archives to work as promoters. Right. Uh, they may they may, but but that that is a good idea. And so uh, I'll back time. You know, five or six months before Halloween next year, and I'll put up a blog post with a list of the usual suspects, and as a follow-up to my other blog post, just to let people know what's out there and and where to get it. And the bat, unfortunately, right now is only available in 35 millimeter, but there are plenty of art houses that can do 35, and perhaps at some point UCLA will make a scan of their preservation material, and it'll, it'll become more available. Now you've been crossing boundaries and uh, you're accompanying films with synchronized sound, or at least one. Yeah. Well, we've become familiar with Philip Glass's score to Dracula, which was the first of the talky wave of horror, and you've gone on to the second, which is Frankenstein. Yeah, and, and I had done the score for Dracula three different times just before covid uh, because that film has no musical underscore, and the filmmaking uh, of Dracula, a lot of the the, the techniques are not that strong. Uh, there are pauses you can drive a truck through, and a lot of the performances, not just Lugosi's, they're the, the little bit 
uh, either creaky or there. You know, everyone is still figuring out how to make a sound film and how much is dialogue and how much do you watch people go up a flight of stairs with nothing, nothing else happening. And you really ache for underscore in a film like Dracula because it went so well. I thought I'd try the same thing with Frankenstein, which has no musical underscore. It only has music at the very beginning and in the closing titles. Uh, music which there's no screen credit for, and I, I have to imagine that those uh, music cues are mood cues or photoplay cues. I just haven't figured out what they are mm-hmm. uh, just yet. But there's no musical underscore, and what's interesting about Frankenstein is that the first half of it doesn't need that much. And also James Whale's direction and perhaps also whoever was cutting the picture, it's a lot stronger. The visual mm-hmm. storytelling is, is a lot stronger. It moves ahead, but there are definitely places here and there where you just need a little hint of something here and and there. Uh, and then in the second half, once it, it, it maybe the last third of the film really needs more. But there are little things where, you know, a scene ends and then we, we fade out in silence. We hold for in black for a second then we fade up again in silence and we wait maybe five or six seconds before anybody says anything and so you expect a musical transition the way you might have heard in a radio play in old-time radio so well and what also I, to remember the structure of those first generation sound horror films it's a half an hour before you're seeing anything really weird scary monstrous it's all building atmosphere and suspense then you've got a half an hour of all right we admit there is a monster in this movie and then the it's only the last and these films are rarely even 90 minutes they're more like 80 so the you have 20 minutes of actual violent mayhem yeah uh, and and (laughs) and frankenstein i think is 71 minutes Mm -hmm. Uh, so what i did is i i watched the film a couple times and took a lot of detailed notes on where I thought musical underscore would go. I would I would hear it in my head or feel my instinct to lean into the keyboard and say, oh, this needs something. And then I would also make note of two or three things that happened just before that cue should start. So mm-hmm. for a transition, I would, I would put two lines of dialogue and then say, go from this mood to that mood. And then when you see the Frankenstein... Not the creature. The creature is the creature. Frankenstein is the guy. When you see him take that second puff of the cigarette, drop out. Um, so I, I could be ready for things. Uh, but there were a couple of things that happened during the show and during rehearsal that I was not expecting to happen. The film opens with a prologue. And if you watch the Blu-ray, it doesn't open with the Universal logo. It just starts cold. And this man walks it to center stage and starts talking to you. So I... When we started the show, I I did you know big scare I did big scary opening and transition into that, and then when this man begins speaking, I had initially planned to have something very low and like a line of cellos would be or basses, uh, very quietly underneath him, and then when we were doing a sort of a sound check just to watch the film on screen, and I had this other thing occur to me to use just the chrysoglot, which sounds like a chalice or like a vibraphone without the the, the, the tremolo uh, running. And that's what I wound up using in this show. And, and uh, here's a little bit of that. 
a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh, And I find it interesting that the harmonic idiom you use would be a bit modern in 1931. It probably is, but that's what came out of my hands during rehearsal. No, I and, think and it like, makes it very effective. I think I think it, it does. It's just going from to G minor to E flat minor and then back and forth. And I, I do wonder about whether I would do the same thing the next time I play for it. Uh, but that's what I try. I mean, I, I told the... It, yeah, I think it sets up, this is a fairy tale, but a scary fairy tale. But without hitting you over the head, it's just... Yeah. Just see... You know, I, I, I told the audience you know, two things. One is I'm just trying to add seasoning here and there mm-hmm. where it's needed. And I also told the audience, this might not work. <laughs> We're about to find out. I really um, think it sets up that stare. I'm going to tell you a story. Yeah, I thought I felt it needed something like that. And uh, there were a couple of other scenes where, like, there's one thing that I felt needed help, which is the first time we see the creature. You know, he comes in, and uh, there's that whole sequence with turning. With, oh, turn off the lights, and then we turn turn on the light, and we we watch. Karloff as the creature stand there look up at the sun and then he puts his holds his hands up in the air and he makes that gesture that he makes a few times in the film where his hands just they look like they're trying to reach for something or beckon something or hold something like it's a metaphoric reach yeah I suppose uh and it's hard to get inside his head but I thought that that moment needed a little something so and you'll hear in the recording which was done with my iPhone sitting on the stage, so it's not excellent sound quality. But you'll what you're going to hear is from the moment the creature enters, and I actually was not going to play at that point, but there was something that kicked in when he walked through the door, and I just did something very, very light. And it, the, the, the excerpt goes all the way through the whole sequence with him looking up at the light, and then they, they, they close the, the shade or whatever it is, and he sits down. It understands. Watch. Take care of that, Take care. 
It understands this time. It's wonderful. As always, I love these recordings where you can hear the audience. It adds yeah. so much. You have three layers going now. You've got the music, you've got the sounds of the film, and you've got the audience. And it's it's really rich. This is some of the most fun samples that that I think I've heard since I've been working with you on the show. Oh, thanks. Yeah, they're 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 fun. I'm trying to sh give you a sense of what what I what it was like to be at the show, but also some examples of what I was trying to do so you don't think that I'm doing a wall-to-wall -wall score. So there's one, here's a, here's a clip of, it's a, just a transition. It's a couple of lines of dialogue, which I had written down. And the scene ends and we fade out and fade into something else. It's just to take people musically and emotionally from one place to the next. I made it with these hands, and with these hands I'm destroying. I must find him. I will be you stay here and look after Elizabeth. I leave her in your care, whatever happens. You understand? In your care. And then the other moment, of course, is when the creature comes in and scares the heck out of Mae Clark, playing Elizabeth, uh, the fiance she of, should have of just Frankenstein. shoved a uh, grapefruit in his face. Right. That, that's, that I was trying to think, why do I know that name? Oh, right. Public Enemy. <laughs> that would have and, taught and, that monster. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Everybody is in their, uh, has their own performance style uh, in this film, as was the case with Dracula. And she, she's actually one of the more as close to natural uh, as you can get in 1931, as opposed to Colin Clive has his style. Uh, uh, the, the guy who plays Elizabeth's father seems to be doing whatever the heck he wants. He'll walk into a shot and say, oh, what's this here? Are you trying to burn the place down? Give me a chair. Is that a chair? Uh, and it's like said nobody could control. It. Anyway, the moment when the creature enters the room that, you know, for some reason Frankenstein uh, has... Uh, locked her in this room for no reason in a close-up you can the audience laughed there's nothing you can do about it but we hold on a wide shot and it's one of those things that would totally work in a silent film where 
we have this big wide shot of the bedroom. There's Elizabeth in the foreground, and in the window, we see the creature. Comes in, climbs through the window, and slowly approaches her. We cut to a medium shot, and then back, and then he follows her over to the door. Now, in a silent film, we'll buy the fact that she doesn't hear anything, but come on. But you have to do something, because it is kind of clunky, and you don't want to be over-the-top you know, look out, here comes the monster, just a low, low uh, uh, simmering suspense. So uh, you'll get to hear some of what I did for that sequence all, all the way through uh, uh, the end of it. that shows you a little example of my making notes about where the dialogue starts, where to come down and uh, my notes might have said cut out at this word but I may have during the show uh, felt a different energy and a different flow and kept going just lightly underneath to segue out of the music so you know, like I said there were things that I planned, there were things that until I was in the theater with the huge image in front of me and Uh, a packed, absolutely packed house uh, behind me. We're all going, we're all on the ride with the film. Uh, There's no way to rehearse that. So uh, that's why, that's one of the advantages to improvising is that if you leave yourself open to your your instincts and inspirations, uh, something you may not have planned, but suddenly in the moment will feel Oh, this needs something. I'm just going to do just turn on the the eight foot strings, but close close the the swell shades all the way, and just just very carefully uh, trickle something in here. You can you can do that, and so it, 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 there were some places where I think it worked, and then the 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 big climax of the film, which is just a series of big overhead wide shots of people with torches going through the countryside, uh, definitely needs something, and so I. I will at some point write something more specific, but uh, it's something I'm just considering what I call March of the Angry Villagers. Um, <laughs> and, and and then that builds into the big sequence where they've trapped the creature at the windmill. And it, it may not be easy to hear in this, this recording sample, but it's, it starts in the last maybe minute or so of the fire. And I have a note to myself. There's a There are three or four times where we cut to the creature up at the top of the windmill, and he's waving the flames away. But the the last one of those shots, it, there's a lot more flames, and the creature is just screaming. 
and terror and panic. And I felt that having the music completely drop out at that moment and then resume after we cut away was the most effective. And it, which is the same way I treated uh, the sequence when uh, the the creature is raised up during the lightning storm and then brought back down. There's all these sound effects, uh, whereas. Uh, the transformation sequence in Metropolis needs a lot of music. Uh, I felt that it was more scary to, to just have uh, the, the film's own sound. So what we'll hear now is the tail end of the, the sequence with the fire of the windmill. You you may hear the moment where I drop out and you hear the monster screaming, the, the creature screaming. The music resumes and then it dies down and segues into the next sequence. This, uh, I think this opens a door to uh, quite a lot of different exploration going again past Halloween. I'm thinking off the top of my head of classic sound films pre-King Kong that have got space open. You know, All Quiet in the Western Front jumped out of my head. Oh, yeah. I mean, the thing is that at, at RKO, there's a point in the early 30s when David O'Selsic becomes the general manager or some position like that and he feels it's important to have music and hires Max Steiner and that's why there's music in a lot of the RKO films and that's why there's a score for King Kong and a lot of other studios were not doing that and uh, one thing I remember watching on Turner Classic Movies is Mad Love uh, Mm. Peter Lorre's first American film and for goodness sake it's about a concert pianist uh, and there's there's no music in the entire film, and it's 1936, and uh, there's, it, it just really co- cries out in, in a number of places uh, for, for music. For anyone who's really interested in this subject, there's a great book 
called After the Silence, S-I-L-E-N-T-S, by Michael Slowick, who's a fellow professor at Wesleyan. And it's all about what happened to film music between 1926 and 1934. Why it dropped out, why it didn't drop out, the the myths that we know, the different ways uh, that people tried to make it work. Uh, did it have to be diegetic sound, if I'm using that word, or non-diegetic sound? You know, and that's the college word for, you know, the thing where you would see somebody in a 1931 film walk over to the radio, turn it on, the underscore would come out of the radio, and then they would play out the scene and then turn off the radio and they were done to justify where the music was coming from. So it's a great book. It's called After the Silence, and he's really, you know, studied... Uh, I think he watched and, and studied 250 films from that time period, and it really it lays it all out for you. Well, it seems like a fertile area for potential programming. And uh, Oh, we'll, definitely. We'll have to put Mad Love on your Halloween list. Yeah, I, 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 I think so. <laughs> I think so. I mean, there's a lot of things I did oh, many years ago uh, at a show. Uh, I, I did a live piano score for one or two of the, the educational shorts that Keaton – and. Buster Keaton made for educational pictures where there's just no dialogue. Like One Run Elmer has almost no dialogue. Forget it. And of course, there's no music, and it really needs something. We did uh, want to some, assure people Buster Keaton did not make movies that were educational. <laughs> just for just for physical comedians, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. But that was the but, name of but, a, a, yeah. a production company that never bothered to change their name when they changed yeah. their product. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's definitely room for it when it's done carefully and tastefully and just just to enhance, you know, as I said to the audience at, at the show of Frankenstein at the Library of Congress, I said, from what I understand, you know, Universal was one of the last studios to convert over to sound. They had just spent a lot of money on All Quiet, and they didn't spend a lot of money on, on these horror pictures. I mean, who knew they were going to be their bread and butter for the next how many decades? And even if James Whale and Todd Browning wanted music, they were going to get it. Mm. So I don't, I don't know. Uh, there are definitely people who believe you shouldn't mess with this and leave it as it is, and that's their original vision. But I also think that because of budgets or, or just the technical aspects of it, there wasn't going to be a score uh, anyway. And there's, yeah, there's plenty of film that that deserves. I did it. One of the High school programs I did in Rifle, Colorado, a few weeks ago. Uh, uh, one of the teenage students uh, spoke with me afterwards, and as there invariably is, there's one kid who is a Stooges fan, <laughs> and we were talking about that. He said, "Have you ever played for a, a Three Stooges short?" And I, th- I said, "No," and I thought, you know, that's a really good idea mm-hmm. because those films never had music, and they don't need a lot. But just between the opening and, t- and closing titles, uh, you could do something to just add a little bit. So it might be fun to try. You know, I'd say if there's a a theme to your career, more than it being anything about music per se, it's the really the concept that performance of a film is different than a film. It's it's a separate artistic moment. Oh, it's it's definitely it's definitely different, and, and that's what among other things, is what makes silent film and the silent film experience unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not, you don't think, as an audience member, I'm at a performance, but you do pay attention in a slightly different way because there is somebody in the front of the room playing an instrument or an orchestra 
of uh, of human beings create creating or performing the music and because of that performance element even if it's out of the corner of your mind it it's different it's not film with no sound it's I mean, I really, this is something I talk about in the book that I'll publish at some point next year, is that silent film is is its own medium in a way. So here's a reminder to go over to silentfilmmusic.com, sign up for Ben's email, and to check out his schedule of appearances coming up, where he's playing for many films, including Harold Lloyd in The Freshman. So speaking of The Freshman, we've got a piece of your recent performance. Yes, this is recorded live in performance at the Oscar Larson Performing Arts Center at South Dakota State University in Brookings, South Dakota. The, this is the second time I've played there. And one of the fun things that I've, I've found out about Oscar Larson uh, is that Oscar and his wife met when they were both in a silent film orchestra in in Minneapolis somewhere, or Minnesota. There is a very nice pipe organ in one of the concert halls there, in Founders Hall, which I was uh, using to accompany the freshman with Harold Lloyd. It's a, I'll pronounce it wrong, it's Reuter or Reuter, R-E-U-T-E-R, pipe organ. I have heard that organists refer to these as Roto-Rooters, but they, I don't know why. It's It's a really nice instrument. And uh, so what we'll hear is uh, a recording from the, it's the tail end of the party sequence segueing into the moment where the mean uh, guy from school says, you know what, we were just kidding you, and blah, 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 and then Harold breaks down. And so you'll get a real range of the kind of sounds uh, you can get out of this, this really wonderful pipe organ at Founders Hall at the Oscar Larson Performing Arts Center at South Dakota State University. Here's a few minutes from my score for The Freshman.
I feel so bad for Harold when I hear that music at the end. Yeah, and there were things that I noticed because I did the score twice. And the first time I played for it, it, it's been a while since I played for it, but I was very much aware of the moments where Lloyd has a natural, honest acting moment when he realizes, oh, it's actually this, or, oh, this isn't going to happen. Also, the moment when he's wiping the mirror and sees Jobina Mm. in in the background, you know, and those were moments when I would just come way down to help draw the audience up into his, I mean, he's really having an honest, real uh, acting moment there. It's very, it's really wonderful. And the, what I wish I had recorded both performances, because on the first night, I forgot my, my recorder in the car. And that was the night that at the moment when he breaks down and cries, the audience uh, gave out an audible, absolutely sincere, oh. <laughs> and I'd never had that happen to me before, and it was just wonderful. They, I, could, I mean, they were really into the film, and it was just wonderful. It's just what he would have wanted, that it's just... I think so. Yeah. You know, Lloyd was following on what Chaplin had figured out as far as balancing moments of seriousness and pathos with all the crazy slapstick. All right, finally, we've got a uh, batch of questions from our Facebook page, which is called The Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. So (laughs) while you're working to try and keep up to date with Ben, join that page. Uh, We'll certainly keep you updated on um, the activities of this podcast and whatever pertains to that. And uh, some of our listeners were kind enough to post some questions. And some of these are issues we've talked about before, but people are always joining us uh, for the first time. So it doesn't hurt to circle back and talk about some of these things again. So we have a lister, and I'm going to mangle your name, sir, and I'm apologizing in advance. Uh, Robert Sivchik uh, Uh has a, a, a string of questions. I'm going to group his questions together. Okay. How important in playing music is it to adapt the music to sudden situations in movies? For example, a pratfall in the case of comedy, plot twist. Is such a procedure necessary, or does it depend on the style of the musician? And he also asks, what work does Mr. Bodell prefer, improvisation or playing prepared and developed music in advance? Well, improvised is always easier, uh, and I've had an opportunity recently when I was in Rifle, Colorado with Symphony in the Valley, uh, where they did two of my orchestral scores, but they invited me to sit in with the orchestra, and uh, I forgot how nerve-wracking that is. Uh, <laughs> last time I did it, it was even more nerve-wracking because it was for City Lights, conducted by Timothy Brock, So, uh, but it's not something uh, I usually do. It's it's a different mindset, and it's definitely harder because you're reading written music and trying to stay up with the film, whereas if I'm improvising or if I've pre-composed some music and the rest of it I'm drawing from my own musical vocabulary, I can keep my eyes on the screen a good deal of the time, have the images come into my brain, and and have music come out of my hands that, that almost spontaneously is the music I'm hearing in my head to underscore it. It's just easier, and because... Of the number of shows I do, it's just easier to work that way. Because I don't have time to write out all that music. And if I was just touring with one picture, it would be another story. As far as quick changes, 
I don't know that it's important. I think it's up to every musician to create their own thing. There are some musicians who, you know, smack their hand on the keys when somebody falls down. That's not my own taste. Uh, I have found ways to make a hit or a fall fit uh, musically. Uh, in other words, instead of making it like a sound effect, uh, make it line up so it's on a downbeat of something. Because if you watch the performance, you, uh, you can watch the wind-up or the prepare for the hit. And if you're uh, staying loose enough, you can make things fit. But I, I still... I've been doing that for a bunch of years, and I'm now th- thinking, is that too much? Uh, yes, I can do it. I I can make it work, uh, but you don't want the audience to be aware of it. And no one has really complained to me about it. Uh, I like how you did this thing when Keaton gets hit in the head. Uh, but I, I am always wondering, am I overdoing that, uh, even though it makes it look like what we're watching is choreographed dance that matches the music. It's interesting. Some of the best evidence we have of what the practices were are the scores that were issued beginning in around 1927 into the synchronized era and they finally petered out around 1929 1930 but we have at least evidence of what audiences expected to hear accompanying a film and i find it as a pattern it's interesting if you're listening to a vitaphone or a movie tone score that for a comedy you're more likely to hear a strophic tune that it's eight Mm -hmm. sixteen bars and finishes and resolves. Uh, yeah. Where a dramatic film will not do that. We usually try not to come to a full cadence and then start something else. It, it's much more continuous and it's much more uh, closely following the action where uh, a lot of comedy accompaniment seems content to just say hey it's funny time and i'm giving you a funny atmosphere yeah and and a lot of those 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 late 20s scores are compiled from photoplay music mm-hmm. of the time uh the difference i think is and this is one of the many things that makes chaplin's score for city lights remarkable is that there is a lot of stopping and starting to go with his action so one of the things I found fascinating, and I probably already talked about this, but the sequence where Chaplin, uh, at the beginning of the film, is looking in a, a shop window, and there's two different objects, and he'll step back, and the little elevator behind him comes up, and he goes back and forth. It's this it's this um, waltz, and Tim is conducting us, and we stop every two or three beats. Da-da-da-da. Da-dee. Da, 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 da. And so at that point... Chaplin, I guess, because he or Alfred Newman or or the two of them knew that, well, since we can totally control the music, we can do this. And that's something that you hear in Chaplin's score for modern times, where there are little things that will stop and start every bar or two, as opposed to being music beds. Uh, It's it's 
you know, it, it's hard to, to know what the best way to do is, and I'm still evolving my opinion about it, but the, the idea is for music to sound like it's coming from inside the film mm-hmm. so that people forget about you. I love that. And I love that from inside the film. It's It's got to be inside the world of the film and not outside. So if it's it meets an audience's expectations, then they're not lining anything up with it as part of the what their experience but if it feels like oh this is something that that fits then then i suppose it's okay even if the scoring technique isn't what people did in 1925 i think we've covered the question that uh, mr bill graf sent how much is prepared ahead how much is immediately improvised i just have yeah. a question for him are you any relative of herb graf <laughs> the famous uh, oh, yeah. film collector yeah yeah i i, I uh yeah i I've never, I never, I never met Herb Graff, but I remember watching uh, his silent comedy film festival on public television when I was, I guess, in the seventies when I was a kid. Uh, I think he, it was a mix of films that came from his and Bill Everson's collection. I think it was him and Bill Everson and Walter Kerr who put those together. Mm-hmm. I met one of his other sons at a show I did a long time ago, but. Yeah, I don't know. So if you are, let let us know. We'd love to talk. Uh, And uh, our last question from Agnes McFadden. How do you prepare to do a score when it is a film of which you are unfamiliar, haven't seen, and there's no screener offered? Well, Agnes, uh, as you know from coming to Mostly Lost, (laughs) that happens sometimes. The analogy I like to use is that it's kind of like driving somewhere at night that you've never been before and you don't have your GPS. You don't just stare at the yellow line and move forward. You're looking all over the road for deer or mailboxes or, uh, oh, there's that Denny's I should I have to make a, make a right at and stuff like that. And you're also looking around thinking, okay, what two or three things could happen through that door, through that window? This woman has just uh, pricked her finger. What's going to happen next? Is she going to do this? Is that going to happen? Uh, so you're you're in a mul- you're in multiple realities. You're you're thinking, well, what's come o- already? What's happening right now? What several things <laughs> could happen next? And to stay loose uh, musically, in in the sense that uh, playing something that if you're really not sure where this is going, that that will still work uh, because the audience is lining the music up. Uh, so you don't have to be super specific. you know. It's, again, one of these things where how much is on the screen and how much does the audience need help? Uh, so it's... it's uh, And sometimes you get surprised by things. I like that story that William Perry told about the, the, the sustain pedal stuck and he bent down <laughs> to fix it and he came up and now there was only one boat instead of two. <laughs> and the other example I think of is... I. I was playing for a series of Japanese silent films at MoMA and had not seen any of them before and was unfamiliar with the director's work. And I had played for one or two things that were very serious and heavy and dark and uh, like very sad. And then the next film I was supposed to play for was I Was Born But, dot, 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 directed by Osu. And I thought, oh, well, here we go again. And so I, I start out in this dark, somber, minor thing. And if you've seen Ozu films, you know they're a little bit more like... Well, the, a little more like Hal Roach comedies. Yeah, those uh, silent uh, kid comedies that he made around 1930. They're, are, they're wonderful. They are. They are, they are the R-gang of Japan. 
Right. So as soon as it, I realized what this was, I went into a major key and took off from there. But sometimes you get it wrong, <laughs> and you try to make it work musically. Hopefully, you can shift quickly so it's not really obvious like somebody has the wrong record on <laughs> uh, for three minutes. This is something where my background doing improvisational comedy has really helped me. You know, the 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 old saw of, you know, yes and. And if somebody, somebody tags in and has suddenly uh, changed everything, uh, you, you have to immediately go with it and justify it, uh, identify yourself, label the other person, and make it work. Well, that's episode 53. I'm so glad you were listening and... Thanks, Kerr, for making this happen, scheduling it, keeping me on task, and making sure we get out at least one episode a month. This has been the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon live musical accompaniments to silent films and occasionally an early sound film. (laughs) (laughs) I'm your host, Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist, historian, presenter, home video label, educator, etc., etc., here, as always, with my co-producer and co-host, my friend, Kerr Lockhart. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks so much, Kerr. Do go to my website, silentfilmmusic.com, get on my email list. Email is really the best way to find out what the heck's going on and stay in touch. And uh, until next time, thanks for listening. Go see and a live silent film and be part of the show. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, be part of what's happening. And uh, we'll either see you online somewhere or I'll see you at the silence. So long. <laughs>